From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. I'm sure the question has crossed your mind, How Safe Are We?, and that happens to be the title of Janet Napolitano's latest book, and uh, you probably recognize the name because she served as President Obama's Secretary of Homeland Security. So I guess the first question I should ask you is, how, how safe are we? And, w- and what are the states? When you, when you ask that question, are we talking about another 9-11, or are we talking about all the lights going out in the major city? What are, what are the stakes? So um, in some areas, we are safer than we were um, prior to 9-11. Uh, it is uh, difficult, if not impossible, to imagine another 9-11-style attack uh, succeeding. Uh, um, in other areas uh, where uh, the risks are greater, uh, they've evolved, uh, and we're not paying as much attention to them as we ought to. And I would include in that list uh, cybersecurity uh, and the risks of a major cyber attack. I would include in that area the security impacts related to climate and climate change, which uh, people don't think of climate change and security in the same sentence often, but we ought to. And I would include in that list the increasing risk of mass gun violence, uh, mass casualty events. What about the 2020 election? <laughs> no. <laughs> the 2020 election is a is an opportunity for people to um, express their opinion about the government and the incumbent. But you're not worried that that outside forces are going to try and either hack the vote or hack the minds ah, of the voters. Okay, I wasn't uh, tracking the question. Um, I am concerned, actually. Uh, I think that um, if there's anything that's uh, pretty undisputed from the Mueller report is that the Russians were all over our 2016 election, and we have no indication but that they are continuing, if not increasing, their activity. Did you have it? What, you served from 2009 to 2013. Mm-hmm. Did you have an indication that they were as active then as they seem to be now? No, we didn't. Um, uh, the whole area of cyber was changing so rapidly uh, while I was secretary. When I started, I spent maybe 10% of my time on cybersecurity-related uh, issues. By the time I left in 2013, it was you know a, a good 40% of my time. And, and I noticed that the, the just recently resigned Secretary Nielsen gave a State of Homeland Security speech a couple of months ago, and she ranked cyber as the top security risk yeah. of the United States. You don't think we're doing enough, though? No, no. I think, uh, and I talk about this in my book, um, uh, I think we have lots of red flags. And I analogize it to, you know, the period before 9-11, there were lots of red flags of strange things going on. uh, um, And they they just weren't connected. And the 9-11 Commission, which kind of reverse engineered what happened after the fact, you know, attributed that to a failure of imagination. Well, we have lots of red flags of intrusions, of hackings, of denial of service, all kinds of mischief going on in the cyber world now. Uh, But uh, it doesn't take much imagination to see that we're only a step away from a major cyber attack of some sort. Well, then why would we not be, uh, I mean, if somebody 
has made a deliberate policy decision not to do something about it? You know, this is where presidential leadership is essential. Uh, it really requires the convening po- uh, power of the White House to bring together not just the federal agencies, but state and local governments and the private sector uh, to to really uh, work through all of the issues that are implicated in the cyber security world, which is a very complicated world, as you know. Well, the president was recently uh, on the phone with uh, Vladimir Putin, and I understand that the election came up very briefly, but, uh, and, and I don't know whether we've been told everything that was said, but in a phone call like that, is there something that a president of the United States could have said to the president of Russia that would get him to stop? Well, I think uh, uh, there can be a clear warning from the president that uh, that activity will be met with increasing sanctions by the United States. Uh, and we Sanctions need to- being like trade sanctions or, you know, uh, yanking travel privileges, or are you talking about retaliation of some kind? Well, one doesn't like to think of retaliation, but certainly trade sanctions, uh, 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 sanctions involving our diplomatic relations. Uh, there are all kinds of different sanctions, and they ought to be graded, right? They ought to be uh, scaled to, to match um, and to hopefully deter uh, the particular kind of intrusion that we're detecting. We're capable of that? Absolutely. Okay, just wanted to make sure. I don't want you to reveal too much because I wouldn't want to tip our hand. But I have seen episodes of, you know, certain political dramas where somebody presses enter and Moscow goes dark. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying we actually can do that. I just wanted to feel you out on that. All right, so the other big issue that we're facing now, of course, is the border crisis. And you had a border crisis during the Obama administration. I mean, that, that was when we first started seeing waves of children coming from uh, Central America, right? Yeah, that really started after I left. It really started in 2014. I left in 13. Uh, But let me just uh, stop right there and and say I I wouldn't use the word crisis with the southwest border. Um, Why not? The border is a zone. Uh, It needs to be managed. Right now, it needs to be uh, managed in such a way that uh, those who are coming seeking asylum can have their claims heard promptly uh, and effectively um, uh, where families and children can be kept together uh, um, and and the claims disposed of. Uh, you know, we should flood the zone with the rule of law in a way. <laughs> but, I mean, um, have you seen numbers like this before? We haven't seen numbers like this before in terms of families with children. We've certainly seen numbers like this before in terms of uh, numbers of illegal migration. The uh, the composition has changed. It used to be lots of uh, single men coming right. from Mexico looking for work, uh, beginning at the end of the Bush administration and continuing into Obama. That really changed so that net migration from Mexico actually was the reverse. More people of Mexican heritage were leaving the United States to return to Mexico than were coming in. But then what we saw was the development of migration from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. Uh, and, and now, of course, we see increasing numbers of families with children. Is Mexico doing its part? You know, Mexico is, uh, I think, um, needs to be a partner in this. 
and uh, they can obviously always do more, but we really ought to focus on what, what's the source, uh, what's the cause of all of these people fleeing uh, Central America. And uh, we ought to invest uh, some resources into things like uh, gang violence prevention, into strengthening civil institutions like law enforcement, like the judiciary, in those countries. You know, we, we have some experience in this. When Colombia was a narco state, uh, the United States had a program uh, uh, called, you know, Plan Colombia, uh, and we invested significant resources there. We worked with Colombians who didn't want to live in a narco state. And now, frankly, Colombia is a tourist destination. So mm-hmm. we know that we can get this done if we have the will to do Are so. Are there leaders we can work with in these? These uh, failed states? There's always some, uh, whether they're the current leaders or leaders. We're trying in Venezuela right now, but. uh, Well, Venezuela is a different situation. Yeah. I understand that Guaido or no, as a Maduro was on the plane ready to go, and then Russia said, no, you're staying. Yeah. No, I think uh, one of the issues with Venezuela is we need to avoid it becoming a a proxy uh, struggle between the United States and Russia. Is um, in these others in, in the migration? Is that strictly because of what's happening in those countries, or are there other outside forces involved that are doing this deliberately to hassle us? No, I think um, you know people don't pick up and leave their homes uh, in these circumstances and make that very dangerous journey to our border unless they're truly desperate. And these are desperate people. They're looking for safety. They're looking for asylum. On the asylum matter. We've been told that um, it's a scam, that people will uh, will come here for economic reasons, knowing that they can say, I'm seeking asylum, and that is your golden ticket into the U.S. because there's no way that there are enough judges to handle your case. Is that true? No. Um, you know, the way those cases are handled is there's an initial uh, presentation, and the applicant has to demonstrate a credible fear of persecution. And it's only if they establish a credible fear of persecution that they're allowed to stay in the country and have their claim fully resolved. Is there any value in making it harder to get in, which seems to be the the Trump administration's policy? And I think he's, um, I don't know whether the argument's correct or not, but what he said is that we've been behaving like a bunch of soft-hearted humanitarians, which is, I suppose, a nice thing to do. But if it causes a crush of people at the border, uh, you've got to get tough. You've got to build a wall. You've got to make it clear that if you, you're making this journey for nothing, you're subjecting your family to this misery for nothing because we're going to either block you with a, this 80-foot barrier or whatever it is, or our our uh, border patrol is going to turn you away and send you home. Yeah, well, I think the wall is a symbol. It's not a strategy. Look, we deserve a secure border. Um, and the way you secure the border is with manpower, with technology, sensors, tunnel detection equipment, uh, with air cover, drones, uh, uh, things of that sort. So you secure the areas between the ports of entry. Uh, and then we really need to uh, make sure those ports of entry are modernized, have the most current technology, fully staffed. Uh, that's a strategy. That's a strategy that allowed us under President Obama to drive illegal migration uh, down to 40-year lows. And, and those numbers were 
uh, continuing to go down. Uh, as but that tough, was when it was mostly tough, single as, men, as, right? As tough as uh, well, it was a, it was a mix. Um, but as you know, as as tough as uh, Trump has appeared to be with all of his rhetoric, et cetera, um, it's not working. Uh, whatever he's doing is not working. And again, I return to uh, my point, which is that we need to focus on what's the cause of that migration. We know what the cause is. We know that why those families are fleeing. We ought to deal with that. But you're saying the only alternative is essentially some form of what nation building. Mm. which you know, America's tired of. Well, uh, they're also tired of uh, processing lots of uh, legitimate asylum claims. So uh, you can either talk about a wall. And when I was governor of Arizona, I used to say, show me a 10-foot wall and I'll show you an 11-foot ladder. ladder. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, y- you know, and uh, as I said before, I think a wall is a symbol. It's not a strategy. Um, so you've you've got to have a real strategy for protecting the area between the ports of entry. You've got to have a strategy for strengthening those ports through which thousands of trucks and vehicles transit every day. Mexico is our third leading trading partner. It's responsible for hundreds of thousands of jobs in the United States. Uh, and then you've got to get at the root cause. What if the president were to say, we want to be a humanitarian nation, but we're full, and so whether you're coming here for economic reasons or seeking asylum, the border's closed. Well, I, I don't know about you, but um, I don't think the United States is full. And I think the, uh, the economics are really interesting. Uh, for example, uh, I live in California now, and you drive through the Central Valley of California, and everywhere you go, you see signs for uh, workers wanted. And you actually see fields that are not planted because there's no one to pick the crops. You know, the the economics are such that there's um, uh, clearly need in the United hmm. States. Well, so talk labor. to the people who think just the opposite, that the, this is the reason that wages in some parts of the economy are depressed. We let too many people, even legally, we let too many people in. Yeah, I think that the, the data just doesn't show that. I think the data shows that um, uh, the number of migrants allowed into the country legally or those who come undocumented has really no depressive effect on wages. What, what about, They're filling jobs that Americans don't want to fill. What about uh, this, this idea that we should be selecting people based on their skills? Well, I think that's you know I think that's good. I think and I think a good immigration policy allows for that. Um, and so, if you want to do that, you've got to increase the number of visas allowed for high skilled workers and visas for their spouses to work too. The Trump administration has cut back on those. But um, I think a good immigration policy includes security at the border. It includes visa reform. Uh, and it includes a way for those illegal in the in the country now to get right with the law and earn their way to citizenship. So we have room. We can raise the number of people allowed to come in legally. That will help the economy and not hurt the economy? Yes. You're saying all those things? Is, I am saying all of those okay. things. Okay. And do you think then that, because I've heard this said too, that if you were to hold a vote today, uh, if if leaders of both parties were to allow a vote today on immigration reform, it would pass with majorities in both houses. Is that true? Um, it 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 would pass in the House, probably not in the Senate. Hmm. Even if Republicans brought it up for a vote. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. Why not? What's the hang-up? Well, I, I think it's become a very partisan issue. It's become, on the Republican side, it, uh, it's either the Trump way or the highway. Uh, and so that doesn't allow much room for immigration. Even the traditional, there's still a few traditional Republicans in the Senate who look, who see the economics of this as you do. Yeah, right? well, you know, and it would be nice for them to cross over. That would be great. Um, but uh, I recall uh, uh, during the Obama administration, we got a very good immigration bill through the Senate. Right. Uh, it was sponsored by the so-called Gang of Eight, right. bipartisan. Uh, went over to the House, which was under the control of uh, the Republicans, and they refused to even bring it to but the But because you had that crisis at the border, whatever you want to call it at the border, all the kids showing up. Uh, well, because the Speaker of the House said, no, we're not going to take up immigration. Mm. It's a tough issue. I'm not going to paint a rosy picture. But you know what? Uh, we elect leaders to help deal with tough issues, and we can't just allow immigration to keep remaining this kind of toxic, divisive issue. We, we are nation uh, that has gone through and, and experienced waves of immigration in the past. And, you know, in the mid-19th century, uh, it was uh, uh, Germans who were immigrating. And there was a lot of complaints about Germans. Uh, at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, it was waves of Irish and Italians. It was the Chinese Exclusion Acts. And all of those have gone by the wayside. And all of those groups have integrated into our country. It's, it's part, part what makes our country great. Janet Napolitano, former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and now the head of the University of California system and the author of a book called How Safe Are We? Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. 